It's been a while. Yeah, right. It's been too long, man. So nice to see you. Yeah, it's great to see you, Cam. Uh, always good to see you. Uh, it's like holiday season. I think this is my last day in the office. So fun. We did a big purge just now, and I uh, and I was thinking about you coming in, and I pulled out my favorite kind of books on architecture, specifically around Vancouver and design around high-speed transit, Vancouverism, kind of all that kind of stuff. Kind of some of the things I'm looking forward to talking to you about today, Arno, because you are the best architect in Vancouver. <laughs> I mean, I get so excited about um, the buildings that you do and uh, the beauty of them. In our world of, of marketing condos, the greatest challenge is making buyers care or understand um, what they're buying. You know, it's it's a straddle-lot in the sky. It's literally a it's a fantasy. It's not a fantasy. It's a, it's a box in the sky and the design of the building, how the building looks, uh, is just one of the most important things about it other than maybe location finishes and amenities and a few things, but selling buildings like yours would be a privilege because they're just gorgeous. I mean, uh, that's a lot to take in cam. <laughs> so I'm just absorbing that. You're, you're very kind. I still feel like I'm, I'm a work in progress. Uh, trying to uh, find our way through uh, uh, Vancouver. I mean, I've lived here all my life and uh, I still feel like there's things I need to learn about the city, but hopefully our work at its best, I'm hoping that it kind of reflects the, the potential that I truly feel this city has. And uh, hopefully we live up to its promise. Yeah, why not make buildings beautiful? Yeah, I mean, I think, uh, you know, all of us have traveled around the world. We've, we visit cities specifically because of how they look and how they feel and how they work. And I've always felt like uh, the city has this incredible potential um, still to be delivered in some ways. I mean, it, it seems to sort of make the top lists of whatever rating of the day. But uh, for me, I still feel like we're reaching to, to kind of get to where Vancouver really wants to be. And I think uh, in some ways we've gone through this kind of uh, infant stage. Uh, we're a toddler and now maybe the last 20, 30 years, we've, we've sort of been like a teenager. And uh, I feel like we're, we're trying to transition from being a teenager into an adult. And we're not quite sure how that's going to look and how that's going to feel. I mean, I think we're all seeing uh, bits and pieces of plans and so on that get rolled out uh, from time to time. And, and then, uh, you know, there's uh, kind of the, this kind of fear and trepidation of, uh, oh, I'm, a, I'm an adult now. You know, that feeling when you hit 30 <laughs> or whatever. Uh, you're, you're not 30 yet, right, uh, Kim? <laughs> <laughs> it's like, finally, I'm an adult. Oh, my goodness. Uh, you know, here I've arrived and, and now what? And I, I feel like the kind of... Vancouver is in that funny stage, you know, where it, it really needs to decide to grow up and, and become, uh, you know, a real city on the world stage, a serious city. Yeah. And when you say that, do you refer to the, the powers that be and what they allow? Uh, yeah, all of the above. I think, I think we have to think bigger. Um, you can see in, in kind of 
some of the past moves that have been made. I mean, I'm thinking Cambody Quarter and some of the other things. Um, we, we sort of tend to underplan. Uh, we, we underestimate the capacity of our transit system, for example. Yeah. We don't we don't think the people are are going to be here or they're not going to come, but history has proven otherwise. Uh, I think you know the city keeps growing whether we want it to grow or not, and uh, we better sort of uh, take that and and as as a as a something real that we have to deal with seriously and and not kind of live in denial and and seriously kind of plan for it as we move forward. No doubt, you don't like the Cambie corridor, do you? I mean, the plan of it, because uh, right? I don't, I think it's, a yeah, I think it's, you know, I mean, I, th- you know, uh, here we are, what, uh, it opened in the line opened in 2009, just in front of the Olympics. And here we are sort of 10, 12 years, 13 years later, a handful of buildings built. Uh, I think we're all going to look back and say too little, uh, too late, came too late. The plan, I think, for Cambia Quarter came years after this, the line actually went in, if I'm not uh, correct. And uh, we're, we're looking at big chunks of, of, of it being redone. So Oak Ridge was uh, reworked to uh, allow for a new kind of uh, city center or trans- a regional center. And then Marine Gateway also had to be reworked, still being looked at, I think. And, and I think probably a lot of our other plans are going to go the same way. I, 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 I think Broadway plans probably going to go the same way as Canby Quarter, where we're going to be looking at redoing chunks of it. Uh, maybe it gets folded into the Vancouver plan as it moves forward. Well, how would you describe the Broadway plan? Is it just not dense enough in the, in the same way that Canby probably isn't? Uh, I think it was, uh, you know, at the time... Politically, uh, there's probably a lot of pressure to do something. Something needed to happen, and uh, it was uh, it needed to roll out in advance of of the Broadway uh, line being constructed. Uh, I think there was a lot of pressure from uh, provincial politics, federal politicians, to to make sure there was a plan in place to not do what we did with Canby. I think, and uh, so I think. Uh, given COVID and all the kind of uh, circumstances around how the Broadway plan was impacted by it, uh, uh, the best kind of uh, plan came out. But I, I think to think of it as a 30-year kind of plan, which it was sort of sold as, and, and kind of that's it, we've sort of thought about it, and this is what we're going to offer for the next 30 years, is I think is completely unrealistic. So if can be is any indication of what's coming, uh, within, I don't know, first few years of the Cambi plan, version two got rolled out and then version three got rolled out. And then uh, a couple of other neighborhoods like Oak Ridge and, and Marine Drive got tweaked. So I, I see the same kind of uh, situation happening on Broadway. But you've been part of that process. You've been on design panel, right? Yeah, I've sat on panels. Uh, we've we've been asked about things from time to time, um, and uh, I don't know my my sense of it. And I've been in Vancouver for a long time. I'm over fifty now, <laughs> so uh, I I just feel like uh, uh, sometimes these these plans come together and and get passed because there's this kind of fear of the pushback from the from the community or the, the 
or the residents or whoever, you know, whoever that, that kind of group is in quotes that if we push too hard, if we're too bold, uh, if we really kind of reach forward and, and kind of, kind of do something in a, in a, in a really bold way, uh, that there's going to be too much pushback. You know, we're not ready for that type of change. You know, it's, uh, we're still, a, a smaller city. We like kind of the vibe, uh, you know, it's, uh, we like our low density neighborhoods. We like, uh, we know better than I would, but I, what I know about our international reputation for architectural design is that Vancouver is famous for these glass towers. You know, that this, with this thing that you see, especially in a lot of the older buildings downtown, especially is what we're now known for. And it's, it's sort of nice to live in sort of not too nice to look at a little bit ordinary. Have you heard that too? I've heard that. And there's, books written about the city of glass and so on about, yeah. you know, I think Doug Copeland wrote a book. Um, anyway, correct me if I'm Might wrong. Might be on that table somewhere. <laughs> but that's such a small part of the city. I mean, the downtown peninsula where, where most of the glass buildings sit or, or is a small part of the city and it grew up, uh, in the last sort of, uh, you know, basically since Expo 86. So it's kind of 30 years or so. Um, using technology of the day and and uh you know i think we're known for being a city that's that's risen up in a time when when glass buildings were you know sort of the type of building to build other cities around the world you know dubai abu dhabi you know these kind of middle eastern cities have similar kind of approach to architecture but that's also changing with technology now i'm surprised you don't do more work in those places based on the style of what you like to design uh, we did it actually, we did a building in, in, uh, Dubai years ago. This was before the 2009 crash. And actually we were invited to actually have an office there, set up an office. Uh, one of the big, uh, Dubai developers approached us and, and, uh, said, you know, why don't you guys have an office here and we'll do lots of towers and it's going to be good for you guys. I don't know. I, at, at the time, it was it was really incredible offer, very exciting. But I kind of took a, a look around and sort of had this feeling that something wasn't gonna work out like the way maybe you think it was gonna work out. And and sure enough, like a year later, um, the bottom kind of fell out of the the market in two thousand nine, and and uh, the whole economic crash. Uh, ground everything to a halt there. So yeah. kind of glad we, we kind of passed on that offer. No doubt. You're a great designer and there's very few architects in the city that are going to be famous when they're 70, but you are the most likely because of the style of what you design, but there are lots of other great architects and they make a lot more money than you. They run massive firms and they're crushing huge projects. And I think I know why it's, it's because, you know, your designs cost more. And I think most developers, especially uh, the majority that are building, um, you know, providing homes for people in condo towers, they have faced so many costs from the cities and construction costs that uh, taking the risk of a more expensive design, something that's more expensive to build, and then hoping that the consumers are going to want to pay for it is uh, sometimes a scary idea. Yeah. I mean, it's interesting that you, you bring this up. We hear, hear it a lot. Um, I guess my my kind of rebuttal or, or response to um, 
to that. First of all, we're not a, uh, a big office. We're about 20 people. And so there's just a limit to how much work we can, can do and the work we want to do. We want it to be meaningful. Um, but on the, on the cost side, I think the way, I mean, I used to work for, for Bing Tom and, uh, he was sort of my mentor and the way I've, I've kind of approached our work is not unlike, uh, sort of he approached some of his work, uh, back when I was working with him. Um, the focus really on our work is in creating value. And, uh, so, you know, people look at our buildings and go, yeah, they're different. Um, maybe they cost more. Uh, I would say in general, actually our buildings uh, overall have to be cost competitive with, with other buildings. But what we really focus on, because we do so much rezoning work, uh, we work really hard at the front end stage, uh, even preliminary concept stage, uh, to try to get additional density, landing it in, in appropriate ways on the site. So in some ways... Uh, uh, trying to to make design so good that they uh, uh, kind of uh, can achieve a slightly higher density than maybe a, a kind of a regular design. So in that in that way, we're able to take uh, some of the the kind of extra value that's created uh, in achieving a, a little more density and then putting that back into the buildings themselves. So uh, what we find is often developers are less concerned uh, and, and actually happy to to actually put a little more effort into differentiating their their product if they know that their performa and the bottom line is still being uh, achieved in terms of financial performance so that's that's kind of how we look at it and, and so it means that we have to work pretty hard up front you know it, and it also takes uh, more time uh, often, uh, which, which sometimes, uh, certain developers are, are a little nervous about because just going through that, that kind of collaborative process with city planning department, sometimes developers are often quick to kind of try to shortcut that period and try to get to certainty faster. And, and often I try to, if developers are asking me about the process and a little nervous about going through rezoning. Uh, for example, um, I, I try to uh, sort of calm their fears that, that, that in the end, I think working collaboratively with the planning department, maybe taking a little longer, uh, the outcome is always uh, almost always going to be better. And, and you can see uh, other developers around town that have been ambitious and kind of working with uh, planning departments in a way that's that's kind of more collaborative they've been able to also achieve kind of similar outcomes so mm -hmm. that's that's how we kind of approach our work how do you talk a developer down from when they're feeling a lot of pressure and stress and hurried uh so i have a business degree and and uh mba so i i, I sometimes am able to kind of speak their language <laughs> and i can see when um Perhaps uh, the kind of inclination towards risk management is is uh, potentially um, going to run into kind of a shortcutting of, of the potential of a project. Um, we can usually sit down and, and run numbers uh, pro and con against a certain direction or, or not, along with our clients. So uh, I'm, I'm able to, uh, you know, people 
probably don't think of me as an architect that can run spreadsheets, but I do. And uh, so we, we kind of can speak the same language in a way. And, and uh, often we're able to demonstrate that if we are successful in moving a project in a certain direction with a, with a municipality, for example, that their outcome is going to be far better than if they just sort of cut that discussion off now and kind of push towards a, a conclusion. And uh, so I, I find in many cases I'm able to, to convince, I'm, I'm not always able to convince them. Obviously I'm listening to our client. Uh, if they want to uh, sort of cut the process off, then, then we're listening to them. But more often than not, we're able to achieve some pretty amazing outcomes. Yeah. What are you working on now that you're excited about? I saw uh, Landa's Oval project. We're working with. Uh, yes, yeah, uh, we're we're working on uh, a design with Landa right now, uh, right next to the Olympic Oval in Richmond. It's our second project in that neighborhood. It's uh, a project with a hotel and uh, two residential towers, and uh, it's sort of uh, taking what we've learned from. Cascade City, which has sort of broke some of the rules of uh, the kind of typical Richmond approach. And we're pushing even harder on this one. And uh, so, yeah, we're pretty excited about where, where that one's heading. Awesome. Are you doing that one yourself? Because I remember Cascade City, I introduced you to Landa along with another architect and a collaboration. Yeah, we're, we're doing another collaboration this time. I think it's with IBI. Oh, cool. Uh, yeah, so we're hoping uh, so far. Nice. It's great. Yeah. Nice. And I saw uh, downtown Hollywood North. Yeah, uh, an interesting site. Uh, a client came to us. They're looking to build a little office building there. Uh, I think they want to occupy a good portion of it. Uh has a historic building on the site and uh, now sort of sandwiched between two much larger projects. So it's really tricky little infill. And uh, it's been, uh, I would say a bit of a challenge kind of working through the issues around heritage preservation and, and what parts of the building to keep and so on. And um, just sort of almost like threading a needle, uh, trying to fit a, a, a little building in there. Mm -hmm. It's been really challenging. It reminds me of this site here and what I want to do with this narrow lot yeah. on the side and the extra height that we have here. Yeah. I think that, you know, there's a lot of these sort of leftover sites, you know, sort of the low hanging fruit, I think downtown has sort of been picked off at this point. And, uh, if there are some incredible little sites, uh, around the city, uh, that just require, more work, more effort to, to Creativity. try to, yeah, yeah. And, and, uh, we're happy to, to do those. Um, we're doing a, a I think another one on house street. That's like a 25 foot, you know, you. really leftover piece of land. And, um, the only way it can work is if you can't actually do parking on the site. So we're looking at like a rental off a uh, residential rental building. That's cool. What about, uh, the hotel? Uh, Oak Street, VGH, on the proposed new SkyTrain station? Yeah, so that project, uh, our original client uh, ended up uh, looking to, to get some funds because of the, the financial situation during COVID, and they ended up putting it on the market. So, so um, I think BOSA has uh, purchased it and is moving forward uh, 
unfortunately, we're not going to be a part of that one moving forward. But uh, uh, we wish the the new team well, and, and uh, hopefully, it's going to be a great project. Yeah, well, it looks good so far in your initial concept for sure. We were looking at the tower downtown. That's the going to be the tallest passive house in the world. Are you aware of that one? Yeah. Yeah. What do you think of that technology and that design style? Yeah, I think uh, so. Passive house is a uh, kind of uh, uh, taking over from where lead uh, sort of established the, the kind of initial awareness of of uh, being more energy efficient. I think that the main uh, sort of idea around passive house isn't necessarily carbon reduction, but being more energy efficient and more resource efficient. So reducing the amount of glass, uh, uh, having more insulation, increasing the air tightness of, of buildings, reducing the amount of thermal bridging. Um, I've had a lot of conversations about passive house. So maybe this is going to be a little controversial. I don't know. Uh, I, the jury's still out for me on passive house in Vancouver. I think, uh, uh, it's it's a it's a good name. It's been branded well. Uh, it's been sold extremely well. Uh, I, I think it's easy to understand in a way on the surface of it. It really comes uh, out of a history of building science. So, um, uh, and and it and really sort of uh, developed in Europe. I'm not sure. We'll see. I mean, certainly using less energy is always a good thing if you can design uh, sparingly, uh, using less materials, less energy, just in general, I think I agree uh, overall with that approach. Where I struggle a little bit is that uh, there's so much emphasis placed on um, the building envelope, air tightness to, to reduce the energy consumption to a low, low level. And I think in climates where um, it's neither too hot or too cold most of the year. The amount of energy saving, uh, I mean, we'd have to look at it more carefully because because a lot of the a lot of the science, uh, the true benefits of passive house, I think, happen when you're in in much more uh, climate extreme environments. I think in in Vancouver, windows are open a big part of the year. Um, passive house doesn't work very well when the windows are open because it's the whole theory of it is to create a very airtight environment so you can tightly control the the temperature within the building without using too much energy and the reduction of the amount of glass uh, in principle i think makes sense but then it kind of fights with uh, a little bit, I think, it, it, with the livability ideas about how, how you might want to live on the West Coast, for example, here, where we can open the windows uh, a good chunk of the year and, and maybe have more glass that connects you to the view. So so for those reasons, I think I'm, I'm still kind of uh, 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 taking a bit of a wait and see attitude. The other thing is it's just more expensive. Uh, uh, the, the thermal bridging and detailing, the amount of insulation, um, glazing, triple glazing, and so on that you need to uh, that that's required to achieve that kind of uh, envelope standard. It's going to be expensive. So then um, you wonder about what the 
kind of trade-off is I, I actually lean much more towards a, a kind of a carbon reduction model rather than passive house. So, cause that to me, that's really what we're trying to do uh, in general is kind of get the, uh, the carbon greenhouse gases out of our in- environment. So, so taking buildings, um, electrifying them, you know, not using gas heating, placing much much more density on on transit than even what we're thinking of today to get people walking and riding bikes and and uh, getting them out of their cars so a passive house building in in the middle of uh, a suburban area um, you know it's debatable how much what is, what is it really doing for the environment when everyone has to drive to get to this passive house building, right? I mean, so we've got to kind of think holistically about what we're doing. And I think to me, carbon reduction talks more about getting out of automobiles or gas powered automobiles, um, using efficient transit systems, just using less in general, right? Yeah, it makes sense. I just realized I forgot to say congratulations. You got a bun in the oven. <laughs> Not you personally, but Christy. Yeah. Um, so something yeah, we're it. super excited. And uh, I think January, my life is about to turn upside down. Yeah. So we'll no see how doubt. that goes. But. So you're expecting in January? Yeah. Uh, a little girl. Uh, awesome. Looking for names. Uh, <laughs> yeah. Not any ideas. <laughs> Yeah, like it's going to be huge. Uh, it's going to be a huge difference. Uh, oh, it's going to be amazing. Yeah. Little, little girls love their daddies. <laughs> I hope so. Yeah, I'm do. looking forward to it. <laughs> Mine uh, FaceTime me over, we we're eating lunch together in the office and she FaceTime me crying, crying her oh, eyes no. out today because somehow she'd figured out. Um, anyway, so, you know, there's Elf on the Shelf. You'll learn about these things, Arno. Uh, <laughs> Elf on the Shelf uh, for every day in December magically moves around the house. And uh, and this morning, a silly little fella, he was hanging off the uh, handle of a cupboard and his leg was hanging down, blocking the other cupboard Uh-oh. so it couldn't be open. You're not allowed to touch the elf. Anyway, um, Lisa and Liv were distracted and when they looked back the little guy had moved his leg and tucked it up so oh. that the cupboard underneath could be open and it um just blew Liv's mind she was the first thing she was telling me about this morning and so excited uh, and then cut to lunchtime and she had um somehow figured out that lisa had moved the leg and had lied to her about it and was very very distraught <laughs> oh, it was pretty cute great. yeah yeah phone screen full to- of tears yeah, yeah, I'm looking forward to uh, all those moments. We we have some uh, young nieces the last few years, so I've had a little bit of an introduction into um, you know the world of uh, little girls. Yeah, uh, frozen and all this stuff. But, yeah, uh, <laughs> <laughs> Christy must be excited. Yeah, she is, and so happy for super her. Super thrilled. Yeah. yeah, thanks. Is her belly just? Big and round? No, not too bad. Uh, you know, she's uh, she's a little taller and, and she's holding up pretty good. So she's <laughs> not showing too badly. She feels she's good? She's a real trooper. She's tough. So oh, yeah. uh, she hasn't been complaining too much. Still working? Uh, sort of, a little bit. Yeah, little bit she's, she's basically kind of gearing it down. Yeah. <laughs> That's smart. She wants to work more, but I think it's... Uh, 
Yeah, going to the holiday break now. Yeah, I think. Focus on that. Exactly. Yeah. So nice. I'm sure it won't impact your lifestyle at all. Not at all. I know you you guys loved, uh, you know, getting it out to nature, hiking on the weekends and all that. Yeah. I mean, growing up here, uh, you know, skiing, hiking, uh, I'm doing a lot of cycling the last few years is sort of my my meditation is getting out, out on my bike and riding. It's just like such a big part of our lives. So hopefully she'll, she'll grow up fast so we can get her out, out, no on, doubt. out on the skis. You need one of those backpacks where you can carry your yeah, kid around. And exactly. Do the grind and stuff. Yeah. Like I know what you like to do. So uh, what else is happening? Any like with back to business, do you, yeah. do you, do you like where it's headed? Do you like your sort of space in the industry and the way things are going or what should we change? I mean, I always uh, see my business as kind of a work in progress. Um, I've learned, uh, you know, you know, you can make business strategies, but then there's also the kind of things that that hit you uh, that that you can't uh, sort of predict. And so I've become a little bit more like a go with the flow kind of guy <laughs> over the last few years. But um, I'm seeing some some really exciting things we were, we were sort of chatting before uh, we got started here that uh, I, I think we're living in a really interesting time. And, and so I'm really kind of intrigued and excited about um, what's around the corner. I think nobody can really predict. I mean, nobody predicted um, COVID in 2018, 2019, that, that just came out from out of nowhere. And uh, I think, uh, in the same way going forward the next few years i think we're, we're gonna be in an equally unpredictive environment but I, I think in a good way i mean i think there's some really interesting things happening um we've got a huge amount of immigration coming uh in, in canada particular particularly um in, incredible uh, kind of demand uh, in the in the marketplace i think for housing all, all kinds of things businesses um so i'm excited to see what's coming next i mean i think for ourselves uh, we're starting to get some calls for work up and down the coast so i mean i mean for me i always sort of hope that we would at least become a regional practice so um it seems like that's that's starting to happen for us so that's kind of exciting to to sort of work in different cities and in different environments um uh, up and down the coast because i'm really passionate about the west coast and uh uh, feel like the future is kind of it's kind of here the north american west coast um because of the lifestyle lifestyle and and just sort of what's already been built up i I think the the sort of base of technology i mean that that's sort of spreading out uh, even in the u.s now to cities like uh well in texas for example sort of picking up some of that but i think still uh we're we're, the innovation is sort of happening along the coast uh and and i think um you're seeing in seattle uh, vancouver i think starting to to, to sort of play a part in that. And, and I'm pretty excited about seeing where, where it goes. And what's fun about working in Seattle? Isn't it hard to figure it's out different. a whole new process and city approval process? And what? Uh, it's, I mean, it's similar pretty much wherever you go. I, I think uh, uh, cities have been pretty good about 
um, sharing information and, and they're all sort of more or less are going down the similar paths of, of, uh, shaping their sustainability standards, the whole idea of bringing transit, you know, Seattle's, uh, moving in, in the direction of mass transit, uh, Los Angeles, same. So there's kind of a consistent thread. I think that's, that's kind of happening, uh, across a lot of North American cities and, and they might be at, at slightly different, uh, stages in, of development, but generally I, I'm kind of seeing a kind of consistent approach. Mm -hmm. So we can't predict the future, but you know, what do you think is going to happen? You know, you say that we're in interesting times. Why are they interesting to you? Uh, I think we're going to, we're going to figure out, um, well, we have to, and, and I think we are going to make some big moves to, to figure out how to address the, the housing affordability issues across uh, in, in North America in general. I think globalization is, is in a interesting phase where, uh, there might be more kind of regional economic uh, arrangements that, that become more important than kind of more global arrangements. So maybe regional centers like Asia, North America, Mexico, Canada, the U S I think we're probably heading into a period where there's going to be more reliance and on, um, and, and probably some of this has to, ha uh, be because of the interruption to the supply chains that we saw during COVID that, that we're going to see more manufacturing happening in North America. Some of, some of that, you can see it already happening in some of the computer chip, um, manufacturing that's moving into, out of Asia and into, into the U S for example, and Mexico and places. So there may be these kind of regional zones and, and being more self-reliant. Uh, rather than relying on this kind of this kind of global um, supply chain infrastructure, and for that reason, I think we're probably going to be seeing some pretty significant changes, um, just just in how we operate in in North America, even how Canada uh, relates to other countries in the world. What do you think should be done to make housing more affordable? <laughs> that's a tough question you must have thought about it oh definitely uh you know it's something i struggle with on a daily basis we're constantly trying to to figure out how to achieve these price points that that are achievable with with uh first-time buyers or local buyers that feel like they're being priced out of the market um it's going to be a combination of things i don't think it's going to be any one thing i i think uh Construction costs are high. Uh, it's going to be hard to see, especially with a, a lot of the layering on to the, the kind of building requirements, how those are going to be reduced significantly uh, over the next few years. I don't really see a big reduction in construction costs. So then it's going to come from either uh, finding ways to, to build more um efficiently so so through kind of prefabrication I, I think it's it's definitely coming we're in the early days of it i mean we were even talking about your project next door and how you're trying to embrace um kind of ideas around prefabricated um hotel units i think it's definitely going to play a part in in our lives uh, pre-manufactured building components, almost like how buildings, uh, how airplanes are made, where pieces are uh, chunks of, of airplanes are made, 
wings, fuselages, et cetera, are made in different locations around the world and then brought together to assemble an airplane. And I, I think buildings are probably going to be built more like that over time, where uh, there'll be a lot less time spent on this site and uh, more time sort of in manufacturing plants, uh, assembling pieces. So you bring the pieces to the site and, and sort of assemble buildings that way. It's hard to to see how in a place like Vancouver, where, where we have such scarcity of land, that the land price is going to drop significantly. So then, then you really only have a few levers left to try to sort of uh, bridge that affordability gap. And I think, you know, sort of finance is one area where I think there could be more creativity. Uh, I, I think uh, we've sort of talked about it, Christy and I, that, that uh, really, because uh, so, a lot of her friends are millennials trying to get in the, into the market, right? And, and how some of their friends managed to do it was that they had their parents kind of bridge the gap for them but uh you know there's just so many people out there that don't have parents that can do that my parents certainly couldn't do that mm -hmm. for me and and sort of helping with that first chunk of uh of of money whether it's uh you know some some kind of creative way of, of getting a, a kind of down payment uh dealt with so that so that once you're in the market uh you can sort of handle the the monthly payments but uh, just kind of bridging the gap. And I, I still really believe, you know, some say that we're heading into like Vancouver, for example, is, is, is going to become a city of renters. I think we're over 50% rent rental already. Um, I, I feel like that's not a number that you want to push to sort of 80, 90% or even higher. Uh, I feel it's important to try to get people as many people as you can into the market and owning their own home. I think it's important. I, I know for me, it was important to finally own my own home. So, uh, so we need to find solutions. I, I feel like right now there's a lot of effort being spent, uh, looking at the lower income side of things. And I think rightly so, I think there's some big problems, huge problems to be solved, uh, at the lower income in, in Canada and getting, uh, folks into housing, but my worry is that uh, we don't forget about the rest of Canada and, and all those people that maybe can't afford to to kind of get in, but really are desperately trying to find housing. And it's and, a huge group. You know, yeah, we, and we're gonna, you know, we've I in my office, uh, I've seen people leave um, Vancouver because uh, you know they they grew up they got married they had kids and and just wasn't affordable for them anymore and and these were hugely talented people um, extremely sad to see them go but ended up going to other cities Calgary Victoria etc because Vancouver just wasn't workable so that's that's uh you know we need to take that seriously I think it's it's like we're past the point of sort of saying yeah that's a problem. Um, you know, we should probably get to that at some point and address it. I, I think we're at the point now where it's is urgent, is as urgent as dealing with the other affordability issues. Mm -hmm. Yeah, we have one of our years ago, one of our leaders in our company moved to Victoria for that reason, because she bought a big, beautiful new house on Bear Mountain for uh, same price as a yeah. two bedroom condo here. Yeah, it was, but she still works here. You know, it's we figured it out, and it uh, it's worked out pretty good, actually. Yeah, if you can make remote 
working work. And I think uh, it's probably going to be a part of all of our lives moving forward, but maybe not as much as, uh, you know, you sort of hear rumblings like Elon, uh, you know, everyone uh, <laughs> Twitter back to work or you're out. I don't think everyone's going to handle it in that particular way, but um, I think the reality is probably that there is going to be a return to the workplace and, but there still be, will be some room for um, working from home. So yeah. I think the future is more flexible. I think probably that's where we're going to land. We're flexible. We're only 12 core hours in the office together, same time every yeah. week for 12 hours. And then there's 12 hours flexing on either side of those core hours, you know, based around people's workout schedules and dog walking and all that kind of stuff. And then there's yeah. 16 hours where people work from wherever they're most productive and it's working pretty good. It's really nice to see people. It's yeah. nice to get everyone together. Yeah, absolutely. And, and I think for us, uh, doing that creative work, it is so difficult on, uh, an online format. I just find just sitting around a table, getting a pencil and a sketch paper. Yeah. You just can hammer it out so much faster. That's so true. Yeah. And, and also for me, I see the relationships, uh, people spend so much time working and the friendships that they build, uh, in the office and on the team are just incredibly important 100%. and a big part of their lives. Yeah. Like joking around, like yeah. just, uh, enjoying each other. I, I mean, I'm working with an incredible group in our office and, and, uh, I mean, we're in tears, uh, <laughs> during the day sometimes. Laughing, oh yeah. Yeah. Of course. <laughs> Uh, you know, we got some really funny people and, and, uh, the humor is great. So, I mean, you don't really get that in, in an online format. So that's something I, I personally, I really thrive off of that. Yeah. You know, the affordable housing thing is, is tough. And for the, uh, lower income people, it's, um, really serious and requires government intervention. Yep. Have you heard of bank of mom? You probably haven't. It's uh, okay. We have a campaign uh, called bank of mom. No, I haven't heard of bank of mom.ca. And, um, worked with BC housing to prepare this, uh, massive database of people interested in that part of BC housing's program that feels like a loan from mom, mom and dad, where they get to, um, a person from the public with a family income of less than $150,000, um, which is not a small amount of money. Yeah. It's like they call it like, it's hard to even say that number and that's like the working poor. But yeah. if there's a couple together combined, their incomes less than that, they, they qualify. That's awesome. And yeah. part of the, uh, home will be, um, you know, they can just buy with very little down payment. Yeah. The loan uh, comes from the government. Uh, they pay it back when they sell. hundred percent. No interest. Uh, it's awesome. Uh, 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 and has this rolled out yet? Or we have this... thousands of people waiting, but, yeah. uh, they, I think the BC housing money was, I'm not surprised spent during COVID and sort yeah. of reallocated and shuffled around. And there are some projects coming, but it's uh, just taken a lot longer than what yeah. was originally planned due to COVID. I think. Yeah. I think, uh, I mean, that just hits the nail right on the head. Yeah, it's going to be mean, so much exactly fun. Exactly. What needs to happen is this kind of creative approach. Um, the one piece that I would add to that <laughs> is, uh, there's still to me seems to be an incredible fear of, uh, adding density, uh, extra density, right. Um, uh, and for the sake of getting a project going or not, I see many projects not moving forward today because, um, for one reason or another, the performance don't work. And if it would have be that extra little nudge, you know, where, where you might get those two extra floors or four extra floors on top, but there just seems to be such a fear 
that if the Pandora's box opens on that, that uh, everyone's going to be coming and asking for 20 floors or 30 floors or more density here and more density there. And pretty soon we're going to lose control over the whole situation. But I just personally think we're in a, in a situation that's a crisis situation and crisis situation. You need to be bold and uh, working together uh, with trust, with the planning department, developers, entire team, um, find ways to make projects move forward. You know, if it means that you got to put in a couple extra floors on top, do it, you know, just make it work, yeah. make it work, make yeah. it work. And, and I feel like that part of it's just not happening yet. And, and I'm hoping it will, I'm, I'm confident that it's going to, going to happen. Uh, I know certainly in the city of Vancouver, there's some amazing planners that are real problem solvers and, uh, uh, I'm really hopeful that that uh, we're gonna we're gonna get there. Yeah, me yeah. too. The new mayor in Vancouver is a problem solver. Yeah, it's, uh, I'm just absolutely thrilled. Uh, you know, uh, with ABC and and uh, I'm wishing them the best. Uh, I think Vancouver needed a change. Um, nothing against the previous leadership, but it just we were in a place where it just felt like things weren't moving in the right direction. So I'm. Uh, I'm super hopeful. Uh, I'm a huge uh, fan of, of this group and hopefully uh, they're going to make some good changes for yeah. the city. Hopefully I think they will. But back to the, the trust issue, call it between, you know, cities and developers. Do you yeah. think that cities are afraid of being tricked or taken advantage of by developers? Definitely. A absolutely. And I, and I think the other thing is, I think a lot of uh, folks on the, on the city side, don't have uh at least that's my perception of it that they don't don't have a complete understanding of the risk and the reward that that uh is being managed on the other end of the table that they there's this perception that uh um developers are, are crushing it that uh they don't need extra density they're they're just uh um, telling us that the numbers don't work, but it's, they actually do somehow. Um, and, uh, I don't know. I mean, we're doing a little bit of our own development work. I know you're doing work on your side. I, I, I see the numbers and, uh, it's a challenge. It's a challenge to make projects work, um, for a variety of reasons we already talked about. And I think what needs to happen is there just needs to be this kind of trust, uh, that, that has to build up over, over time, over the, and it has to hopefully happen quickly because, uh, we have a lot of buildings that we need to, to build a lot of people we need to, to house. So, mm -hmm. yeah, it's a big, big challenge, big, big problem. I, I don't think government is the solution, not in terms of providing the housing, you know, absolutely low... not. They're, they don't have the capacity to, to do the kind of, uh, volume of housing that needs to be built. There's absolutely no way. Yeah. They need to partner with developers. 100%. I think yeah. the public too fears that developers uh, make too much money. Um, yep. But in reality, uh, they do make a lot of money. Everyone knows these big families that you know, over generations build incredible wealth. Uh, but I think what most people don't know is that the, the profit in these projects is usually 15%, 20%. It's nothing more than anybody would pay 
when they're buying a stuffed animal or a jacket or anything like that. They're, these are normal amounts of profit. The way developers make money is through return on equity. You know, when they put in their own money and they risk it. And leverage. Yeah, huge, they, a huge they, amount they, of leverage, right? So I mean, it's massive amount of risk. Death, yeah. The return on their equity that they put in ends up being pretty good. Yeah. But there isn't there isn't some inordinate amount of profit in these projects. Absolutely, and and I think the other thing that's probably not well understood is that uh, financial institutions aren't going to flow the money. <laughs> so most of these projects are all uh, financed by banks, by private equity, etc. Um, the money does not flow unless you at least hit a minimum return. Uh, which, which uh, you know, is sort of established based on the amount of risk that you're taking on these projects, which is substantial. The risk is substantial for development projects. Uh, and, and projects just won't get built because the banks will not forward the money. So it's not even the developers. Uh, you know, they're, like you said, their return is sort of baked into to the overall performa and, and uh, how they make money how everyone makes money in our businesses as projects move forward and they get built and if projects aren't getting built nobody's making any money so mm -hmm. uh and and i think nobody's moving into housing etc totally yeah it's a it's a toughie um there's i don't know how to fix i'm big on trust high trust and high performance that comes from high trust environments but but bridging that gap between the, the government and the developers or the public and the developers it's it's a tough one it is tough, and I and I think we're going to have to find a solution to that. I think at some point we, I think what's going to have to happen is that they, they just uh, municipalities just take a take a risk and just say for this particular project, for this particular team, we're going to just sort of uh, um, trust that it's going to be delivered and it's going to be fine, and uh, let's move this project forward quickly because it meets. Um, the kind of urgent need. When you say Pandora's box, do you think that there's fear in the municipalities that if they make an exception for this one developer on this one site regarding density Why? or speed, that the expectation will be yeah, from everyone else? Yeah, a hundred percent. I think there are, my sense of it is that there's a real effort being made to kind of keep the playing field level. And, and I mean, I, I, I understand that. And I appreciate that, 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 that you, you don't want to have a perception that any one team or developer is getting some sort of special deal and we've all heard about the the kind of talk that goes around town about who got this and who got that right yeah. and, and so you know i understand it there's a, a real sensitivity around that and i think it's really important to have that transparency um so that there is a level playing field right not not uh, somebody getting a special deal over over somebody else um but that said i i think um, if the right kind of package comes forward with the right kind of amenities, with affordable housing and all these other things that we need, uh, I think there needs to be a point where the decision is just to go no-go. And at that point, if there's a green light on that particular project, I think it's it's really on, on everyone, including the municipality and all the various departments, to try to help to make that project viable, make it go forward and be successful. I think what we're seeing is that even if there's a kind of, yeah, kind of, you know, this project seems to kind of check all the boxes, maybe we'd like to see this one kind of go forward. 
it seems like even those projects today aren't really moving forward for one reason or another. And I think those are the ones in particular that probably need to get looked at carefully first uh, to see if whatever needs to be done to sort of get them moving. Mm -hmm. And then uh, hopefully over time, some of, the, some of the other projects come forward. Yeah, well, you're speaking moving. to supply. Supply is definitely a big part of the solution, probably. Yeah. and, and Problem uh, and solution. Yeah, and we're, we're, you know, we're doing a lot of projects in Vancouver and uh, we, we see... Do you find it slow? Uh, yeah, and, and there, it is slow, um, but for, and, and for all bunch of different reasons, right? I mean, it's, it's, uh, you could be negotiating a CAC, you could be, uh, waiting for various departments to, to, uh, complete their reviews. Uh, um, it could be because there's a lot of volume in the system and it's just, uh, you know, there's only so many people around to do the job. Um, explain just, what a CAC is for people who don't know, uh, in, in rezoning projects in Vancouver, particularly uh, other municipalities have similar, similar mechanisms, financial mechanisms, but, uh, it's a way for cities to capture a portion of what they call land lift. So when projects get, uh, rezoned and, uh, usually at a, at, with a higher density, different uses and so on there's some additional value that gets created uh, that increases the value of the land, for example. And what the city does is they recognize this value creation. And typically a, a CAC, at least the formula in Vancouver, was to always uh, sort of say that 80% of that value creation gets uh, um, charged to the project as a, as a, as a tax essentially. Right. And, and then this tax then gets used to, uh, pay for public benefits, which, uh, community centers, um, parks, uh, whatever the city. Is it allocated to, to that though, or is it going to the general coffers? Uh, you know, there's always, we've had a lot of discussions about where this money goes yeah, in our office and et cetera. Um, and, and often, I think it's it hard to see yeah. how that money flows. And I think maybe the city could do a better job at sort of, of uh, clearly demonstrating the flow of CAC funds and where, where they're going and in what time. I think in, uh, what's happened in the past, uh, at least is a certain funds get uh, paid or, or get charged on projects and um, you don't see the, the benefit. The neighborhood doesn't see the benefit or, or, or really doesn't happen for many years. And, uh, you know, partly it could be a communication issue that if the city was, was maybe clear on, uh, these funds are being, uh, banked for a new community center project and so on. I get that they're being banked for, or taken, you know, tax, they're being created, they're being charged to the developer and the project for yeah. the public good in recognition of this, of this value created by the rezoning. Yeah. Cause I think that's how developers used to make a lot of money. Imagine owning a piece of land, it gets rezoned and the density goes way up. It's now worth multiple times more yeah. than what it was before. It used to be not captured at all. Now it is, but what percentage yeah. of a dollar spent by a buyer on a condo, for example, what percent <laughs> of that is, is CAC? Uh, it's, it's huge. It's, I mean, the, it, and it's not just the CAC, but all the other fees that are getting layered into the, into the system these days, um, for one reason or another, 
Um, Without getting into the percentages, let's break it down for people about like, you know, what is it that goes into a dollar spent on a condo? There's, tell me, I'll tell you what I think, you tell me what I'm forgetting. Um, there's the land cost, the construction costs or the hard costs, yeah. you know, the, the concrete and the steel and everything. Then there's soft costs, which are approximately 50% of the hard costs, which include architecture and design, sales and marketing, traffic studies, yeah. environmental consultants, all that kind of stuff. Then you got the CACs or the, whatever the development cost charges are, profit, 15, 20%, whatever, whatever the construction lenders like to see a minimum of 15% at least, and maybe it's 15 to 25, something in there. That's it, right? That's the whole package in a, in its sort of simplified nutshell. Yeah. And, and, uh, I don't know, I've heard, uh, numbers of city fees in the order of, uh, 20, 30% of the- That's huge. A condo. I don't think most people Um, know that. The 25%, yeah. 25 cents of their dollar goes into the public good, call it the city's coffers. Yeah. Um, there's a huge opportunity to do a better job communicating to buyers and to the public that 25 cents of what you're spending on this home in Vancouver is being taken by the city to build libraries and community centers and, and do good for the public. Yeah. I mean, I, I, that would be a part of it. I think there's, there's, uh, utility, uh, DCLs and, and, uh, construction DCLs that are, uh, that have gone up dramatically in the last few years that are also a big part of those, those fees. And, and those, that, that, that has to do with some of the pressure, the new development is to having on our infrastructure and the amount of money that has to be spent to upgrade sewers, et cetera, to, to sort of accommodate all this new construction that's happening. But yeah, the, the amount is pretty significant. I wonder if given the choice, if a buyer could say, I would rather that my property taxes that I'm going to be paying and everything else pay for the sewers. And I would like this home 25% cheaper. I mean, that would have to be a discussion, I guess, right? With the, with the, with the. But don't you think if the buyers were given a choice that that's what they would choose? Like just forget the DCCs and just give me, pass those, those savings along to, <laughs> to me that I'm trying to buy this home and live in it. Yeah, maybe. I mean, it really depends on what stage of life you're in. I'm sure there's a lot of people that are in their homes and comfortable and not wanting to pay any more property tax. Cause uh, you know, it's been going up a lot in it the has, city in the last few years. So and uh, so it's a tough one, you know, that's a really tough one. Yeah. 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 But it's, it, 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 you're, you're hitting, uh, you're touching on a point that, you know, it also needs to be part of that discussion of affordability is, you know, how much are municipalities willing to, to kind of, uh, for lack of better words, suck it up and, and play a, a role in, in the affordability formula to try to, to, to improve, uh, on, on where our housing costs are going. And I think certainly what I've seen in the last few years is that there hasn't been much appetite to, for municipalities, to lower fees or, or kind of, um, do anything related yeah. to sort of lower costs. If anything, more and more costs are being passed on to, to projects. Yeah. They are. I wonder why that is. I think, you know, everybody agrees. We want uh, these prices lower. We want cheaper homes for people. I think the pressure is on municipalities. You know, they're, they're struggling with budgets like everyone else is. And, and they're saying that, that these developments that are coming forward that want to get built, um, um, that's kind of where the leverage is. And, and uh, if these guys want to have these projects built, we can, 
we can sort of leverage uh, off of that and and uh, hopefully get some infrastructure paid for because we're not getting it from the, the tax base, the property tax base. Mm -hmm. right? So it, it, it's not a easy thing. I'm not, I mean, I definitely um, feel for municipalities trying to juggle this because it's a difficult thing, right? Sure I mean, is. So it's a nobody wants to pay for a sewage treatment plant in no. sewers, right? I think it'd be nice for the public to know. It's not exciting stuff to pay for. <laughs> you know, there's so much nimbyism and anti-development. Um, I think it'd be great if uh, cities let the public know that, um, you know, that, that maybe that dense project down the street that you didn't seem too excited about, but, but now it's there. It paid for this, this park, this sewage treatment plan, whatever it is, yeah. th that sort of connecting those dots. For yeah, I think, no, and, and I think that's a communication thing. You know, I, I think it's, it's happening all the time, every day, um, you know, community centers get built, parks get built, infrastructure, bicycle infrastructure gets put in. We all use it. I love using the bike paths. I use them yeah. a lot in the city, so I'm a big fan. Um, but somebody has to pay for all that, right? And yeah. and so that's kind of a balancing act. I mean, that's part of, uh, you know, how, where are our kind of priorities and where do we want to spend the funds? I, I think uh, right now, personally, I feel we're in a, a housing affordability crisis, you know, issue number one, uh, along with, um, you know, a drug uh, and, and uh, substance abuse uh, crisis. And, and those things need to be f number one, uh, I think. I agree. Yeah. Do you remember how many people were against the bike lanes when they were being built? <laughs> My in-laws especially and so many people, especially older people. I mean, I never was because uh, I literally stopped riding my bike for a while because I nearly got killed a few times on Vancouver streets riding my bike and feel 100% safer now yeah. that the bike paths are here. So. And you might not agree because you're a hardcore biker, but they're also very useful for like electric micro yeah, transit. And it's going to be a big part of getting around. You already Huge. see it. I mean, totally. I see guys on uh, these monocycles with their helmets on and electric boards and yeah. all kinds of stuff, e-bikes. E e uh, I think more and more that's going to be part of our, our lives. Totally. Yeah. And I am obsessed. I was, I was doing it way back, way back in 2009, 2010. And back then I would get yelled at by the true cyclists for, uh, <laughs> you know, I was sharing the paths with, but I think those yeah. days of that ship. Yeah. Sailed. I think it's, yeah. Anybody's it, yelling it, anymore. It, it's like, uh, you know, getting around town faster. Um, you know, that's, that's what I mean about decarbonizing. You know, those are, those are modes of transport that we really want to encourage. And, and, uh, I think it's awesome to see, uh, all these different, types of vehicles, uh, electric vehicles. Yeah. Uh, and just e-bikes. I yeah. imagine you're hardcore and you're pedaling for real. I'm pedaling for real still, yeah. but I, I imagine, uh, you know, it's starting to hurt a little bit these days. So I might, uh, you know, I can little... see a day when I might switch. Yeah. <laughs> it's so good. There's no going back. <laughs> the hills are taking it out of me. <laughs> oh, it's the best yeah. feeling in the world. <laughs> it's so fun. Yeah. Uh, there's just, there's so many now too. I think that like, I bet in the very near future, like 80% of bikes are going to be powered. Yeah. And, and I think it's, it's, it's here and it's, and it's going to be embraced in a bigger, bigger way. Yeah. Um, that's why I, you know, I believe that we need to make our cities dense, like way more dense so that we can use th these types of transportation 
uh, tools, electric skateboards and scooters, and they work really well when a city is dense and you can use them to get around for a few blocks here and there. Right. Yeah. Um, and, and it makes the city just so vibrant and exciting. So, so I think, you know, I'm, I, I just want to see more density around station sites and, Me too. and just in general. Yeah. yeah, we need it. We need it. There's so many. Too scared like, of density and, uh, you know, I just feel like we need to go. Yeah. I love density. I am an environmentalist and I like the way people live in these small compact areas, you know, it's yeah, frankly it's, good for the environment. It's, it's better than, you know, us sprawling everywhere and ruining everything in, in sort of low density formats. It's better that we all live together. It's very efficient. hundred percent. And, 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 uh, once you've lived in density, um, I've, I've always, uh, since I left my parents, Vancouver special and, uh, still Vancouver, I've only lived in, uh, apartments. I rented for years and years and years in Vancouver. And finally, uh, have my own unit in, in a six story building that we did, um, in, in the Oak Ridge area, uh, close to transit and, uh, you know, being in neighborhoods that, that have density, uh, as opposed to kind of a single family neighborhood where you got to jump into your car to get somewhere. Um, it's a game changer for me. I just don't want to go back to, to personally, I, I don't uh, want to go back to that kind of, yeah, so. it's cool that you're your own customer. I mean, you're yeah. designing <laughs> for yourself. Yeah. We're, we're right across from Oak Ridge mall and we're uh, seeing density coming up all around us and I'm excited. Oh, is that where you're living now? Yeah. On 41st in Willow. And, are you, uh, you, are you know, living in that project? beautiful project yeah. you designed? Yeah. No we way. have a unit there, a two bedroom unit. My wife Aperture? Unit. Yep. Nice. I love that building. Yeah. How to work out? I mean, living. Great. How is it? Uh, great. I love it. Um, it's beautiful. Uh, you know, it's uh, worry-free living, and and uh, hopefully soon we'll get to be able to walk to a bunch of new restaurants. Yeah, and stuff totally. In the neighborhood. That'll be so nice. I'm super excited. Yeah. yeah, yeah, we're on the same page, man. We need we need more of it. There's, I mean, yeah. we, we talked about all the things going on in the world. I mean, it's so funny that we travel. Like, I, I think you know, go to Paris, go to London, New York, all the big great cities that everyone wants to travel to and visit. They all have the same thing in common, right? They're all very dense cities. Uh, you know, residentials mixed in with the commercial. Uh, mostly people are walking, uh, fewer people are driving. And, uh, you know, we go to these cities and visit them because they're great cities to be in. They're just uh, fantastic, all kinds of little shops and, you know, cause you got this vibrancy going when, once you have a, a kind of critical mass of, of density, you can, you can support a, a certain, um, level of business. So all the little shops and the little entrepreneurs start creeping in and all of a sudden you've got this incredible, you know, uh, bakeries and, and restaurants and yeah. all this stuff kind of happening and it's this rich texture. Yeah. And, and that's not going to happen, uh, in a low density neighborhood. There's just not enough, uh, um, financial horsepower to, to get that going. So I, I think, um, the more we roll that kind of model out and, and I'm not saying all, all parts of the city need to look like this, but, uh, there's certainly more parts of the city that, that can be of a significantly higher density and, and have this kind of vibrancy too. Yeah, no doubt. Also, we need more product for people to 
invest in. You know, I, I don't think people, 100%, I don't yeah. think younger Canadians especially can trust the government to take care of no. them in their old age. They, and I don't think we want to have the government taking care of it's all It's not going to happen. Yeah. I mean, I think uh, I'm a, I'm an Xer, right? I mean, I don't know. You're probably a millennial, are you? No, 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 no. 51. Um, you know, we, we're kind of, it was already game over for us, man. And we were told uh, you know, it's, there's not going to be a pension here for totally. you guys. Right. So you guys better figure it out. Yeah. And, and I mean, the millennials are, you know, sort of one generation past and, and now Gen Y. And, and, and so we can't, I don't think it's fair, uh, for the generations that are sort of running the show right now to say to the, the ones that are coming up, um, you know, we got in, uh, we've got ours. Uh, unfortunately you guys are going to have to rent because, uh, that's, what's affordable for you guys. And, and, uh, I don't think that's a really sustainable way to run a city. Uh, you just have to have people, uh, own their own. Um, and, and the cities have figured out how to do it. You go to Singapore, we can, there are models that currently exist in the world that we can look to, uh, that, and can be applied here in, in the city of Vancouver that can help with, with this kind of thing. And I, and I hundred percent agree with you that, uh, that owning is absolutely hundred percent preferred to renting, not to, to have anything against renting. Cause I rented until I was 40 years old. Right. Um, and, uh, you know, it was, uh, super important for, uh, for me to be able to live in What's the easier? city and more, time. more peace. Yeah. I started my business. Uh, so that's kind of how I managed to make it work was I rented a little one bedroom in Fairview and all my money went into starting up my shop. And, uh, that was the only way I could, could make it work. And, uh, uh, I'd like to see other people have that same opportunity eventually, you know, start a business. Uh, I think there's just so many businesses have left the city in the last few years. And, and, you know, the, the, this is all part of this affordability thing. And, and, um, uh, I think we've got to really look at it, uh, seriously, not, not, to become a city of renters and, mm -hmm. and, uh, get people owning and get people starting businesses. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I agree. Totally. I got a, a plan for 2023, uh, related to helping that. I'll tell you about after. Cool. Yeah. Happy to share, but thanks, man. Thanks for coming in and sharing your passion for what you do. I think it's amazing. You know, I'm a huge fan of your design and, uh, I've seen the market pay 10% premiums for buildings that look beautiful. And we've talked a lot today about affordability yeah. and how important that is. Um, I but didn't want to talk a lot about design today, but yeah. I feel like people kind of know our work and, and understand. Um, well, they just need to look our at design. It. Yeah. But, uh, you know, hopefully uh, I wanted to share another side of, of uh, my thinking about yeah. the city and yeah, appreciate what we that. think about. Yeah. Well, tell me one thing that we might uncomfortably disagree on because from like, <laughs> From our side of things, like finding buyers for these homes, you know, it is really important that the floor plans are amazing. And, yeah. and we would say that we prefer these, these towers are designed from the inside out, meaning that the floor plans are right. They're the right size. They're nice and square. They're very efficient, very livable, uh, therefore valuable to people. And that the architect then assembles them in a way in the building uh, that makes it very beautiful from the outside. Um, 
but some great, really designed forward architects, um, it seems that I've seen kind of focus on the outside first, like this is going to be the greatest landmark ever, and then jam <laughs> in the plans in the inside. Do you agree with what I yeah. said? Yeah, I mean, I think uh, we all know the buildings around town, <laughs> and everyone's talked about them. How do you find uh, a balance? Yeah, I mean, I think, I think uh, uh, you know, it depends on the project, right? Uh, and, and what the tolerance is for pushing and, and experimenting. I think to make things affordable, obviously efficiency is key, right? And, and uh, having as many spaces inside a unit that can have a multiple purpose. So, so being able to use spaces in different ways is, is absolutely uh, kind of critical. I mean, I think we're sort of pushing the boundaries of how small units can be and still be livable what do you think you the know, boundary is uh you know <laughs> i mean me personally uh i i think uh getting down to like 400 i, I personally could probably live in 400 square feet but i'm a minimalist and and i i've heard um uh, comments that that we're starting to get to the point where maybe some of these units are maybe getting a little too small um, it depends on how they're organized and laid out and so on. Uh, we launched in small studios in the new year yeah. where the pod or sorry, the, uh, the bed goes up yeah. into the ceiling and reveals a, a desk work yes. area. Yeah, exactly. So cool. I think when you get down to those sort of size limitations, the, the kind of, uh, creativeness and inventiveness has to be in how, um, spaces get furnished and how beds disappear and, and, uh, kitchens get fold away and disappear and so and on and then add bigger better common areas yeah. you know workspaces and uh yeah, and uh you know and obviously outdoor spaces and amenity spaces become so much more important because your your unit is more of a sleeping space than than a living space yeah um but yeah i think there's there's room for all kinds of innovation all all types of uh creativity you know, I've heard those criticisms about buildings being designed from the outside in, <laughs> and then is that really you know the same thing can be said for the buildings that are that are designed from the inside out, where the you know it's sort of the leftover, you know, the facade on the exterior is what's left over and, and doesn't sort of do much for you at the end of the day. You know, it's kind of balancing act. That's what's that's what's fun about architecture. That's that's the the kind of um, stuff we wrestle with every day. You know, it's a funny thing the cities do is they require developers quite often to make uh, an art contribution. Yeah, uh, which often results in an an awkward sculpture somewhere near the front door of the building. <laughs> and I wonder if uh, yeah if there could be some recognition of the beauty of the building as the art contribution if the developer put you know, more into the exterior design of the building and, and the city would recognize that that is gorgeous. I mean, everybody I, gets to enjoy I, it. I mean, absolutely. I mean, uh, I remember, uh, uh, when I was working at, at Bing Tom's firm and, uh, there was a conversation that Bing had with, uh, uh somebody up at the city about how, um, developers and architects weren't rewarded for good architecture or good, buildings at that time um, that sort of seemed to imply that it didn't really matter what the architecture was. And and I remember Bing being very upset about this conversation. So um, I think there has to be an acknowledgement of, of an effort made. And, and I feel like um, 
I think you said there is though. There, you said that if the building is beautiful, if they want it bad enough, they'll make an exception for a little more density here or there, right? Yeah, and, but I think it's a, a combination of of uh, factors that that it's not just the design per se, but maybe that the design incorporates a, a number of programmatic components that that really are seen to be as a whole benefit the community. Um, you know, it might be retail, it might be office, uh, affordable housing, daycare, et cetera. And, and it's a beautiful building, right? You know, but I, I agree with you. I think, uh, we're a little too timid. We're, we're too afraid to, to sort of say this building's good and maybe this one's not so good. And maybe if that building's good, it sort of speaks to the effort that was made and the attention to detail and maybe the values of that particular developer or team kind of put into practice and, and demonstrated, uh, you know, kind of a, a high bar, they should be rewarded. I, I think that's what making a great city is all about, right? I mean, well, I think that could be say. figured out. I mean, there's obviously a committee involved that approves a sculpture near the entrance as qualifying and, and that kind of thing. Can there be a committee that approves the exterior architecture? As- yeah, I'm not sure what the mechanism is. I, I know, uh, so we worked in, in Los Angeles, we did a rezoning there and and uh, one thing that was interesting about uh, some of their uh, zoning guidelines was that for a particular type of construction, a higher quality construction, they would actually bonus additional density for that. And uh, it was baked right into the zoning bylaws. And uh, not sure why we can't do that here, but uh, I think we were told that it, it couldn't happen in Vancouver for one reason or another. But I feel like there should be some incentives for to to sort of uh, step. I, I feel like if if there were, that, that we'd probably get better quality buildings. Yeah, you know, it's tough. Like I uh, like you're saying, the margins are extremely tight. So there's always this uh, uh, pressure to to try to reduce, save, whatever, cut back. Uh, and and I feel like if there were incentives, that there, there you probably see that reflected in our built environment. You know, one way affordability or making a responsible investment in real estate sort of, uh, you know, aligns with design is that I can tell people listening that the last thing you want to own when you're trying to sell something is a commodity. You know, that's the last thing you want to do is just, I have the same as everyone else and I'm only able to compete on price. Yeah. Um, And investing and buying into a building that is truly a landmark, um, you will always do better on the exit. You'll always on the sale. You'll find a buyer uh, to whom that is valuable, who wants to be different, willing to pay a premium, I'd say 10% over market to get something truly beautiful. Yeah. I mean, I think, uh, you know, we might live in denial here in this city, but in in general, people are aesthetic beings. We're aesthetic creatures who want to live in beautiful places and be uh, surrounded by beauty. Right. And and uh you know we're uh, willing to pay more <laughs> for that in some cases um but cities in general i think can benefit from uh a, a kind of an aesthetic mindset or an aesthetic culture uh where there's an importance put to how things look and how things um appear and how our, our built environment kind of uh reflects our values, right? I mean, you, you, there's many cities we can name where we go to and it's just, you know, this is a very uninspired city. Clearly uh, how things look and, and how things uh, appear isn't, isn't uh, 
a valuable thing to totally. this particular culture. Yeah. And, and, it, and this isn't a particular city that I would want to visit. I have to be here because, <laughs> Just you know, I have to be here for business or whatever. Right. Yeah. And, and then, you know, when I want to spend my money, I'm going to Paris and London and, and I want to be in a beautiful environment. Right. Yeah. And, uh, so I think you've, you've kind of, in a way, roundabout way, you know, like this is the potential I see for Vancouver. I, I, I think I feel like sometimes people think the nature has done it all already. Uh, it's such a beautiful place, you know, mountains, water. Uh, we don't really have to work too hard here because... Uh, just don't mess it up. Yeah, let's just, you know plant some trees, you know, we can hide a lot of ugly buildings, you know, being always left, but, you know, we can hide a lot of ugly buildings with trees here. So, you know, there's always this kind of sense that why, why put in the effort, right? Like we don't need to do that. You know, it's Vancouver. We got incredible mountains, but I actually think this city can rise to the top and, and take its place in, in the kind of cities of the world. If we pay attention to some of these uh, kind of details going forward. I do too. And thank you so much for doing your part or more than your share. <laughs> your, your contribution is amazing. Thanks, man. Showing hard. Thanks, man. Give thank my you. best to Christy. I will. I'm so excited for and for you. Awesome. Thanks, Kevin. Thanks, man. Thanks, man.